in Sunday school. So that's those that are 11 and under. Uh, you can now go next door uh, to your classes. This morning we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2 and verses 1 to 2. Imagine that you are in a court being accused of a crime. So you need to use your imaginations here. The land that you are in is God's kingdom. And the law states that you must be perfect in order to be in this kingdom because the king of the kingdom is light and in him there is no darkness at all. You have been accused of sin which is punishable in God's kingdom by death and hell for eternity. This is a right judgment for rebelling against the loving creator and king. And as you see this king in his glory, you know that there is no other penalty that is just. In the court, you are in the dock. And you have the prosecution who has the case for your guilt. The case is compelling. So compelling, in fact, that there isn't a case for the defence. The prosecution's case says that you have sinned against the God who is light. The law says that perfection is demanded and the prosecution can clearly show that you have sinned. There is abundant evidence from witnesses and from the consequences of the sins that you have committed. And you have the judge who is sitting in his place. In this kingdom, the judge is the king. And so the judge sits on a throne. The judge knows more than the prosecution about your guilt because this is an omniscient judge. He knows everything. He wrote the law and he knows everything about those in his kingdom. What they have done, what they have thought, what they have said, all the ways that they have violated his law. But he is also a just judge. He's an incorruptible judge. He will carry out the just penalty for the crime. You can't bribe him. You can't persuade him. And you can't plead any mitigating circumstances. But you do have a defence lawyer. But the defence lawyer knows that you're guilty as well. He has no evidence to suggest that you have not committed all the crimes that the prosecution brings to the bar. So what's the point in having this defence lawyer? you think. How can he defend the indefensible? Well, the court session begins and the judge asks, what do you plead? In in chapter 1 of 1 John, you may have made excuses, but sin doesn't matter. What I have done isn't really sin. I was driven to it, right? I am right. I'm not guilty. But for those in God's kingdom, there are no excuses. 
And so when you are asked, what do you plead? You cry out, guilty, guilty. And you know that you deserve the just penalty. The prosecution brings the case anyway, even though you've pleaded guilty. And all of your sin is laid out before the judge. It's all recorded. All those thoughts, all those secrets, all those words, all those things you should have done but didn't do. Everything is laid out before the judge and you are so ashamed. There is no jury in this trial. There is no necessary, no need for a jury. It's not necessary. You have pleaded guilty and now the judge is going to sentence. And at this point, the defence lawyer stands up. And actually, I'm going to stop the story there. And we'll end the story as we come to the end of the message. Let me explain the scene if you don't understand it already. Last week, John hit us really hard with the truth about sin. He talked about the high bar that God sets as his standard. God is light. He is perfect. And we can never reach that standard God has set. We try to make excuses for our sin, but we know that those excuses are rubbish. We cannot meet that standard. We cannot lower the bar. And so John tells us that we need to come under the blood of Jesus Christ and be cleansed from our sin. We read how we need to confess our sin, not make excuses for it, not say, well, it's not really sin. We call sin what it is. We confess it before a holy God who shows us our sin and we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That's what makes us Christians, isn't it? We have been forgiven of our sin. We have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. But as we read 1 John, we could still feel the burden of sin. We could still feel the weight of of the fact that we know that we still struggle with sin. John tells us to walk in the light as he is in the light. He says that if we're not doing this, we lie and the truth is not in us. Or we do not the truth. But as we read through the rest of the letter, it can get worse. Just in chapter 2, listen to these verses. We're not going to look at them today, but feel the the, the weight of what these verses are saying. Chapter 2, verse 3. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar and the truth is not in him. Chapter 2, verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in the darkness. Chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. And those are four verses telling us we need to live holy lives obeying the commandments of God, loving each other, otherwise we're, we're still in darkness. There's, there's four verses there in chapter 2 alone, and as you read the rest of 1 John, as we go through this book, those verses become more and more. And there's this tension in 1 John between the call to be holy, whilst at the same time knowing that we cannot claim to be without sin, which we read in chapter 1. And it's with this in mind that John puts these verses at the beginning of chapter 2. As we struggle with sin, we must continually come back to chapter 2, verses 1 
and 2. We are Christians who struggle with sin. And the Bible tells us that we have an accuser. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, describes Satan like this. He is the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before our God day and night. He accuses us before God day and night. So let's go back to that picture of the court. So we are in the dock. Satan is the prosecution. He's accusing us day and night before the Father who is the judge. And he tells God, the judge, to cast us out. We don't deserve to be in the kingdom of God. And the prosecution even tells us, as we're standing in the dock, Satan whispers in our ear, you don't deserve to be in this kingdom. You know you're guilty. You need to leave. You need to get out. He accuses us day and night. And we know that we're guilty. As Satan whispers in our ears, we say, I know, I know. We know we don't deserve to be there. We know that we should be cast out. And so, as we place ourselves in the story where we left it, we've been accused, we are guilty, and sentence is, is, is going to be passed because the judge is holy. And we must face his wrath. That's what we deserve. Just a word on the wrath of God, because it's important for these verses we're going to look at. The wrath of God is not uncontrolled temper, but it is his settled, controlled, holy antagonism to all evil. Let me say that again. It's not uncontrolled temper, but it is his settled, controlled, holy antagonism to all evil. God's wrath is just and it is necessary in order for him to be holy. God does not just let sin go and just say, well, let's not worry about it. Justice must be done. And as humans made in the image of God, we know that. We sense that. We know that there needs to be justice. Otherwise, we wouldn't have courts, would we? We have a sense that there must be justice. But the problem we have with the wrath of God is we think, well, it's too severe. But then we come back to chapter 1, verse 5. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. When we understand, as we looked at last week, that God is absolutely holy, absolutely perfect. And we talked about him showing up our sin as he shines that light on us. When we understand that holiness of God and we understand then the seriousness of sin, then the wrath of God does not seem too severe at all. And it is just. Because God is light. And sin is serious. It's rebellion against God. And so we stand in the dock, facing God's wrath. But at this point in our story, our defence lawyer stands up. And as we'll see in these two verses, our defence lawyer takes us from the court to the cross. Our defence lawyer takes us from the court to the cross. And let's see how he does this in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So as we ended last week, we began chapter 2 with verse 1 with, My dear children, I write this, the things that went before about not making excuses for sin, so that you will not sin. 
But John knows we still have a struggle. So, chapter 2, verse 1. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. As we read the rest of 1 John, we're going to see the challenge to live as God's people. And as we read that, we must always have in our minds these two verses. We must always have them in our minds. Otherwise, this is all just so overwhelming for us. How do we reconcile the fact that we are called to be holy, but we fall short? And John shows us that this is reconciled in that Christ is not only our saviour from the condemnation of sin, but he is our preserver when we commit acts of sin. Let me say that again. It's reconciled this holy life that we ought to live and the fact that we struggle by the fact that Christ is not only our saviour from the condemnation of sin, the wrath of God, but he is our preserver when we commit acts of sin. John gives us this court picture here, and the identity of the, of the defence lawyer is given straight away in verse 1. We see that Jesus is the advocate at the court. Jesus is the advocate at the court. John begins with, but if anybody does sin. Now there's the assumption here, isn't there? If anybody does sin, that means we are going to sin. He's not saying, those of you that don't struggle with sin, he's not saying those of you that have claimed that you have no problem with sin, because I agree with you, he's not saying that. He's saying, when you sin, because you're going to sin, he says, there is an advocate. Now, When he's talking about sin, he's not saying those that walk in darkness. This is not lifestyle. This is not choosing to turn away from God and walk the other direction. This is when we fall over, when we fall into acts of sin, when we commit sin. This isn't lifestyle. That's dealt with in chapter 1. This is when I sin, when I fall down, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So when I fall into sin, what then? There's the advocate. Well, what does advocate mean? It literally means called to one side. So if this is a person, the pulpit, I'm the advocate, I come alongside the person. And it was used for somebody who would speak up on someone else's behalf, especially in a court of law as the counsel of defence. That's why we use the court illustration at the beginning. Jesus is our counsel of defence. He is our advocate in the court. The same word is used to describe the Holy Spirit which comes to live in us when we become Christians. John chapter 14 and verse 26 talks of the Holy Spirit like this. This is Jesus talking. He says, But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit there is called an advocate because it speaks up to us on Jesus' behalf. He speaks to us of the worth of following Jesus over and against those like Satan who tell us it's not worth it. We're told all the time, Jesus isn't worth following. 
the word of God is, is, is just too hard or the word of God is, is not true. We hear this all the time and the Holy Spirit comes alongside and says, no, listen to what Jesus says. Listen to what Jesus says. Listen to what Jesus says. It's true, it's true, it's true. And he reminds us of what Jesus has said. The Holy Spirit is the advocate. He defends Jesus to us. If you like, he's Jesus' defence lawyer when he is accused. And Jesus, of course, is always innocent. He's perfect. Now, the same is true in our court, but the other way around. The Holy Spirit is Christ's advocate on earth. Jesus is the Christian's advocate in heaven. Standing before the judge, we have no excuses. We are guilty. But the picture John gives us in the courtroom is that Jesus is there and he stands before the Father on our behalf. We have a defence lawyer and he's a good one. It's Jesus Christ the righteous. No one else is the righteous one. He's the perfect lawyer. The perfect advocate. But there's a problem because he's not a foolish advocate. Not only does the prosecution and the judge know that we're guilty, so does Jesus. He's not standing as our advocate in ignorance of all that we've done. In fact, he's not an advocate that pleads that we have never done anything wrong. When I worked um, for a mortgage company uh, in Plymouth, I worked on a project that uh, was called the Customer Advocacy Programme. And what it was trying to do was to get customers to recommend our business to other customers. That meant they were called advocates. So if you receive a product and you really like it, you might be a satisfied customer. But what a business really wants is you to become an advocate. That is, you're not only satisfied with your product, but you go and you tell everybody else about it and you get them other customers because it saves them having to do much marketing. An advocate speaks up, in that case, for the good things. So if I really am happy with um, my, fri- my new fridge and I want to go tell everybody about my new fridge, I'm not going to say, my fridge is brilliant, it doesn't keep cool, it gets hot too much and my food goes off. An advocate speaks up on the good things, but what has Jesus got to say? What can he say about me? Because what he doesn't do is go before the Father and says, well, he's all right, really. He doesn't go before the Father and says, well, it was his upbringing that made him like that. He doesn't go to the Father and say, well, it was his family that wound him up so much. That's why he committed that sin. That's not what Jesus does. He doesn't make excuses on our behalf. That's not how he's our advocate on our behalf. He doesn't tell the Father that, oh, well, they're all right, really. They don't really struggle with sin. That's not how he's our advocate. So what can he do? Because even he, he agrees that we are guilty. But in this court, he doesn't plead our innocence before the judge. He points us somewhere else for the acquittal. And that's where he takes us from the court to the cross. Where he points to as our advocate is in verse 2. In verse 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is our advocate in the court, but we also see that he is our atonement at the cross. 
In order to understand what this means, we, we can go back to the Old Testament, which we looked at a little bit in Hebrews 9. Not that Hebrews is in the Old Testament, but it talks about the Old Testament. The word atonement, it means at one meant, at one with, to make one with, to make right with. God's wrath, his controlled holy anger with sin and therefore with sinners. We hear sometimes, you know, God uh, hates the sin but loves the sinner. No, God is angry. His wrath is against sin and the sinners. It's against us all and it's taught throughout the Bible. We need to escape God's wrath and he does not by rights have to make a way for that. But because God is a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God who who loves us, he makes a way to escape his wrath. And the whole of the Old Testament, from Genesis chapter 3 where man sins, all the way really to the end, is trying to answer this question, how can I be right with God? How can I be right with God? And throughout the Old Testament there are sacrifices that God provides as substitutes to bear the penalty of his wrath. Now in the Old Testament this was done through the sacrifice of animals, of bulls and goats, in the place of sinful people. There was a substitute. And the sacrifice was required to placate God's wrath. Now in Israel, where God's God's people sacrificed regularly, Daily, every day, sin offerings were brought to the tabernacle, which later became the temple. The tabernacle was the tent that was described in Hebrews chapter 9 of different areas, and the the centre of which was the holy place, the place where God dwelled. How can I be right with God? How can I be in the presence of God? Well, I can't, because no one was allowed in that holy place, except once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make a special sacrifice for the whole nation for their sins. Especially, we read about the ones that were committed in ignorance. If I know I've sinned, in Israel I would bring a sacrifice. But I, so I sin so much that I don't even know all the sins that I've done. And so the Day of Atonement covered those sins as well. The high priest, after ceremonial washing, after making sacrifices for himself, he alone once a year, could go into the holy place of God, but we read in Hebrews, not without blood. And he would go in, and in this room, there was the Ark of the Covenant, which I've got a a picture of up on the screen. Inside this Ark, there was a copy of the Covenant. That's the, the Ten Commandments. A reminder of what we are supposed to be like, but what we are not like. We don't keep those commandments. We have broken them. Again and again. And on top of that ark is the mercy seat. And it's here that God's glory dwelt. And it's here where the blood was sprinkled by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. He came in and there was blood sprinkled as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. God was unapproachable. Because we had broken those commandments, but a sacrifice was made and was sprinkled on this mercy seat between God and the covenant. Blood was shed, taken the punishment, and mercy was given 
so people could access God. It is both an ugly and yet a beautiful picture. Ugly because it's the awful, uh, awful sacrifices, the blood and all of the gore and all of the horror shows our sin, but beauty because there is a way to God into the holy place where there is no sin. But all of this was not made up by God for no purpose. All of this was not made up by God so that it could be permanently forever the way to come into his presence. All of the Old Testament, all of uh, Leviticus, as you read about these sacrifices, is is a picture, a picture book of what Jesus would do. It all points to him. It all points to what Christ would do ultimately on the cross. And Hebrews 9 and 10 is the commentary to read on the Old Testament sacrifices. It explains them all. Day after day, sacrifices were made. Year after year, the Day of Atonement took place. And God's wrath was never satisfied. Because if God was satisfied, then there would be no more sacrifices being made. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 9 tells us that the sacrifices that were offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. So why do it then? Because it pointed forward to Jesus being the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Hebrews elaborates even more. But when Jesus had offered one time, for all time, sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And what that's saying is Jesus uh, was the once for all sacrifice. The priests had to stand up all day because they were always making sacrifices. But when Jesus died on the cross for sin, once for all, he sat down because the work was done. On the cross, Jesus cried, it is finished. It is finished. It is paid in full. The the sacrifices that were being made are are done away with because I have made the once-for-all sacrifice for all time, for all sin. He didn't sacrifice himself just for future sin. His blood sacrificed for all those other sins that had gone in the past that were being sacrificed for in the tabernacle. Because God's wrath then at the cross was satisfied. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. When the animal had to be chosen in the Old Testament, it had to be one without blemish. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. And here we have Jesus, the righteous one. Who was sacrificed? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The perfect one. We cannot have a substitute who is a sinner. I cannot die for your sin. Even if you think I'm a really holy man, I could never die for your sin. Because I'm not perfect. But Jesus Christ is the righteous one. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If the punishment is eternal death, if that's what we're in the dock and the the, the judgment that's going to come our way, the sentence is eternal death for all sinners, then only an eternally perfect substitute could stand in our place. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He never sinned. That mark, that, that high bar we talked of last week, He cleared it every time. He never went below it. He never missed it. 
Sin, missing the mark. Jesus never sinned. Jesus never misses the mark. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Uh, You can turn with me or listen if you want to, but go to Mark chapter 15. This is uh, Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross in Mark chapter 15. And I'm going to just read you two verses from that chapter. Verses 33 and 34. Before I read it, just remember to help you understand why we're reading these verses. John chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. Jesus is God in the flesh. John chapter 1 verse 5. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So, Jesus is God. Jesus is light. He is the light of the world. But look what happens. As Jesus hangs on the cross. Jesus Christ the righteous one. It says in verse 33. At noon... Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice the exchange here. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And upon the God, the Son, The darkness of the full wrath of God came upon Jesus, the righteous one. The darkness is God's wrath. In him there is no darkness, but on him, Jesus Christ the righteous, was placed the darkness of God's wrath. He bore it on the cross. We deserve God's wrath. Remember, we're in the dock. We're guilty. We deserve it. He took it. Notice, he was the one forsaken by the Father. He was the one cast out, which is the treatment for sinners. Again, we're in the dock. What do we deserve? To be kicked out and never to return. Jesus was forsaken by God. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So, let's end that story. Let's go back to the courtroom where we began this morning. What is the penalty for sin? It's the wrath of God. It's that darkness that Jesus bore on the cross. It's that being cast out. We don't deserve to stand in this place. We're about to be charged. The accuser has accused. The judge is going to sentence. And we all know, even our advocate knows... We're guilty. And at the point of being charged, the story stopped with, at this point, the defence lawyer stands up. Well, let's end the story. The defence lawyer stands up. And what does he say? That, well, there's nothing that, that, nothing that can be done? No. Does he say this person is out forever? No. Does he say he deserves to be here? No. The defence lawyer stands up and says... It's been paid. It's been paid. The atoning sacrifice for this man has been paid. My price for my sin has been paid. Colossians chapter 2 and verses 13 to 14. 
he forgave us all our sins. Having cancelled the legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So when I'm in the dock and Satan is accusing me and I'm feeling the guilt of my sin, my defence lawyer stands up and he takes the charge sheet from me and he nails it to the cross. And as the, the hymn goes, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And the Bible tells us that Christ is ever there interceding for us. He never stops being an advocate. We never stop being accused, but he never stops being an advocate. And he is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is always turning us from the court to the cross. Sometimes Satan will whisper in your ear, what are you doing following Jesus? Satan will tell us, you're not good enough. Why don't you just give up following Jesus right now? And when you hear these whispers or even shouts, give them to Jesus. And Jesus will say, you're right, he's not good enough. But I am Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I am good enough and I paid his price in full. He is defending you. That's what advocate means. Someone standing before the judge on your behalf to speak up for you. And what he, ple- what he pleads on behalf of sinners is what he himself has done on their behalf. We are going to hear some tough truths in 1 John. We will realise that the Christian life is serious about sin. But John puts these verses here as a foundation for us. We must keep coming back because sin will crush us unless we keep looking at the cross and remembering that he paid it in full. Finally, uh, notice the extent of this atonement. It says, not for ours only, or not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now what this is not teaching is what's called universalism. It's not teaching that everybody in the world is going to be saved because of the cross of Jesus. We know that because we read the rest of the Bible and it tells us that those that reject Jesus are cast out into hell. We, we know that. that if, you, if you turn away from Jesus, the wrath of God is, is severe. It's not okay to reject God. We know that's true. But it does mean that Jesus has not just died for the Jews in Israel. He's not just died for middle class English people or for rich people or for poor people or or for highly educated people or for people that haven't got an education. He's not just died for people in the West. He's died for people everywhere for the sins of the whole world. On the Day of Atonement, in Leviticus chapter 16, when Aaron went in to the holy place, the priest went into the holy place, he made atonement, it says, for himself, for his household, and for the whole community of Israel. It was for God's people. And what is meant here is that Jesus has died for the sins of all of God's people, regardless of where they have come from, or what social status they are, or what background they have. 
We also see that Jesus is a lawyer with a huge caseload. He is the advocate for billions over the centuries who have believed that he has died for their sins and he has risen from the dead for new life. And so this means also that I can stand here from these two verses and extend that offer to all of you. Because Jesus is either your advocate or he is your executioner. He is either your advocate or he's your executioner. Because he's coming back to judge. He is coming back to judge the world. But for those that are his, he took the judgment. He is our advocate. There is no penalty to be paid. But for those that reject him, the Bible says he is your executioner. The wrath of God will fall on those that reject Jesus as king. And when you have come to Jesus, let us not live our lives in despair when we have failed. There is a time for weeping over sin. There is a time for confession. There is repentance all through the Christian life. But we must keep coming back to the cross. We must keep looking up to Jesus to see that he is our advocate defending us in front of the judge. As the last hymn that we're about to sing commentates on these verses, it says this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my guilty soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the 